Well, let's pray together. Our gracious God, how we thank you for your grace and love to us and your word. And we pray that our text this morning might encourage and inspire us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the next message in this series on the life of the prophet Elisha. Last week we established the circumstances of Elisha's call to his ministry as a prophet from 1 Kings 19. And you'll hopefully remember the rather brisk and forceful way in which Elijah laid his cloak upon the younger man's shoulders, thus compelling him into service. I don't want you to have in mind the classic situation where a soldier is called upon to step forward and volunteer for some dangerous mission, only to have the whole troop take a step backwards, leaving one unsuspecting victim to the task. This was not like that at all. Elisha was a willing participant and responded to this rather costly call with instant obedience. And so our chapter today brings the two prophets into focus, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah the older, member of the pair, Elisha the younger. Elijah, the bold prophet of the Lord, Elisha, his junior and successor. And so for a brief time, this partnership of the two prophets was something not seen before in Israel. But this team ministry, this close association between the two, was never going to be a permanent one. God's instructions to Elijah had been to anoint Elisha as his successor. And so the time soon came when that would become reality. Even though we have to jump over the next four chapters of 1 Kings in order to find the continuation of the narrative. But in order to do that well, let's not jump over chapter 1 of 2 Kings without some comment because that would be taking our text out of context and would be of no benefit. What chapter 1 of 2 Kings establishes, if anything, is this that even after Elijah's hand had been laid on Elisha's shoulder, the Lord still had responsibilities for Elijah, especially in relation to the successor of King Ahab, his son Ahaziah, who by all appearances was just as idolatrous and hard-hearted towards the Lord God, so that when in his position as king and facing an uncertain recovery from the fall, he sent men to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, regarding his prognosis. And these men, on the way, just happened to meet Elijah on the road, who just happened to have a word from God for him. And as a result, two captains of Israel's army and 100 men of that army all felt the full force of the Lord's judgment upon them, for their unbelief, as did King Ahaziah, who did not recover from his fall, leaving Jehoram king over Israel. Now, if anything, that chapter of two kings highlights for us two things. On the one hand, that Elijah seemed to have made a good recovery himself from the depression that clouded his perceptions in chapter 19 of 1 Kings. On the other hand, 
They remind us of the nature of his direct and forceful and unashamed ministry of saying hard things where they were needed. A ministry quite unlike that which Elisha would complete. Even though the two of them, like two drops in a river that start out side by side, but end up in different oceans, the two of them started out together in our text this morning. So note with me these three matters before us. First, chapter 2's focus is upon the fellowship and the separation of Elijah and Elisha. The chapter begins with the scene of the two prophets walking together in the knowledge that their time together was almost complete. How Elijah knew his end was near is not so clear, but somehow he and others knew by some means that we are not told that Elijah was about to head heavenward. But before he headed for heaven, Elijah, with Elisha, embarked upon a journey that took them on a roundabout tour of Israel, from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho and then to the Jordan River, with most of these towns having schools of the prophets that Elijah would be keen to visit before his departure. One commentator notes that each of the four geographical locations mentioned is symbolic in some way. Gilgal was Israel's first stop after crossing into the Promised Land, and so was the place of new beginnings. Bethel was where Jacob wrestled with God, and so was the place of revelation and surrender. Jericho was where Israel watched God defeat their enemies, and so was a place of victory. And the Jordan River, so prominent in the Old Testament and the New, was a place that symbolised baptism and therefore of death. And note too that each junction point in their journey, Elijah requested that Elisha stay behind in order to allow Elijah to go on by himself. Now, was it that Elijah really wanted to be alone? One suggestion is that he desired solitude in order to meditate upon his forthcoming entry into heaven. But it's more likely that his desire to be alone was a series of simple tests for Elisha that began during their walk together and continued after his translation into heaven. We can note those tests. One was a test of his loyalty. Each time Elijah suggested that Elisha stay behind, the senior prophet was probing the junior to see if he had a heart for the work of the Lord, or would he instead show that his loyalty to Elijah and to the Lord was only superficial and could easily be abandoned. By sticking close to Elijah wherever he went, Elisha passed that test. There was a test of prayerfulness. Before he left, Elijah handed Elisha an open check with a great invitation. Basically, Elisha asked for whatever you want. Somewhat reminiscent of the promise extended to Solomon by God in his prime, when God gave him a similar invitation, reminds us that Jesus once asked James and John, What do you want me to do for you? 
Surely inherent in this was a great temptation and would reveal the stuff that Elisha was made from. Would he ask for selfish gain? Visions and revelations? Would he ask for success? There was a built-in temptation in the invitation. But when Elisha asked, Give me a double portion of your spirit, again he passed the test. See, in Hebrew custom, the firstborn son inherited a double share of his father's possessions and with it the right of succession. In Elisha's case, asking for a double share of Elijah's spirit was not about succeeding Elijah, for God had already made that plain that he would. Nor was it Elisha's desire to be a, to have a superior ministry to Elijah. But Elisha was asking for spiritual power beyond his own capabilities to meet the responsibilities that would soon be his. Then Elisha passed the test of his watchfulness. Elijah had said, If you see me when I am taken from you, then it will be yours. This was no easy thing. It was no easy thing for Elijah because he did not have the power to grant Elisha this request. But it was also a hard thing for Elisha because to stand looking into the sky for something is no easy feat. As he had to stand looking up into the sky, he naturally had to avert them from the earth. Just as God's people are always to be watching and waiting and longing for the appearing of our Saviour, who also went into heaven. Second from the fellowship and separation of Elijah and Elisha, the chapter's focus is on the transfer of power from Elijah to Elisha. Verses 11 and 12 of the chapter tell us of Elijah's departure from the face of this earth and into the presence of God, that it wasn't by death but by translation that almost within a blink of an eye, he was gone. When that heavenly chariot of fire taxi arrived for him, the fare was all paid, and the driver, who was Elijah, just had to get in, sit down and hang on. Sometimes you see car bumper stickers to that effect. And all Elisha could do was watch, of course, and end up not quite knowing what to say coming up with an exclamation of sorts, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Now here was a moment to remember, a moment when Elijah was swallowed up, seems in the glory of what will be for God's people. Later on in the text, the budding prophet suggested that they go search for Elijah, somewhere in order to find him, but Elisha knew very well that any search on earth would be futile in the extreme. But they persisted and he relented and they came back empty-handed and he was proven right and he said, didn't I tell you not to go? And so Elijah was gone. And what glory for him in the exiting. And what a way to go. But Elijah was not gone forever. Think how Elijah appears in the New Testament upon the mountain there with Moses in the presence of the Lord Jesus, very much alive. And there, according to Luke, the topic of discussion was the pending departure of Jesus. 
It's no mistake that the Greek word for departure is the word exodus, one that applies so well to Moses, who also seems to have been translated, perhaps, without death intervening like Elijah. So the text tells us that Elisha saw Elijah no more. As a sign of his bereavement, he tore his clothes, while at the same time picked up Elijah's cloak that had been dropped in the translation and put it on, signifying that the baton had truly been passed and received and the work had now changed hands. So while Elijah was off, having the ride of his life into the presence of the Lord, Elisha was left standing by the banks of the Jordan, no doubt contemplating what was to come. Third, the chapter's focus is upon the initial ministry of Elisha, like Elijah. What happened after Elijah's departure is recorded because it's significant. Was it the cloak that would make him great in the spirit as Elijah was? It was not the cloak, but the answer to Elisha's requests for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, and it's seen in two ways. The first is how Elisha displayed Elijah's power. Parting the waters, as he did, was no party trick, nor just a reenactment of what Elijah had done. Elisha did it to confirm the reality of what had been promised to him, and to show that the power of Elijah now rested upon him. Just as Joshua parted the Jordan after Moses' passing, now Elisha did the same after Elijah's translation, and all who saw it would have known that the Spirit of God now rested upon Elisha as he had with Elijah. Note also that there on the banks of the river, that Elisha did not stop and spend a week building a monument to the ministry of his senior partner. Instead, with the confirmation that God was with him, Elisha began to carry out his calling without hesitation, for he would not have proved to be a useful instrument in the Lord's service if he received power but then sat back and did nothing with it. The next way we see this power transfer is in how Elisha depended upon Elijah's God. This is the meaning of his question in verse 14 as he asked, Where is the God of Elijah? This question was not asked in despondency or despair, but it was uttered as a cry of confidence, accompanying his first miracle, which, like Jesus, had something to do with water. And this confidence in the God of Elijah is apparent throughout all of Elisha's ministry from here on, because he had seen how God had displayed his power. This meant that he could strike the water in the full knowledge that though Elijah was no longer to be found on earth, the God of Elijah had not changed. Notice the question, where now is the God of Elijah? He did not ask, where is Elijah? Where is the God of Elijah? Bringing to mind the promise that Elijah had made to him that he would receive a double portion of his spirit. It was not a question that he asked in doubt or out of desperation, but in the full assurance of what he knew. 
This was time now for the God of Elijah to make himself known to this faithless and adulterous people. Now this question that Elisha asked is one that every generation of believers also needs to be asking. Where is the God of Elijah? Or for that matter, where is the God of the Apostle Paul? Where is the God of Luther, Wesley, Spurgeon? Where is his power? Where is his might? Darkness covers this and many other lands. And the church in the West, well, it's satisfied and lazy and in love with the world. Where is the God of Elijah? Where is he who so powerfully and dramatically revealed himself to all Israel, convicting of sin and bringing the hearts of people to him again? Where is his power and mighty acts of long ago? Well, the Bible gives an answer to that question, and the answer is that he is right here. The Lord God of the prophets and the apostles is still the same yesterday, today and forever. He has not left his post. He is not asleep. He is not powerlessly wringing his hands, wishing that he could do something about the situation. The God of Elijah is still there and has not changed. We ought to have that very clear within our hearts and minds. But we should also have the reverse of Elijah's question foremost in our hearts too. Not where is the God of Elijah, but where are the Elijahs of God? Where are the men and women of God? The spiritual giants of today. The men and women who will be like Elijah was to the people of Israel. Where are the believers who are not content with the status quo of the church and the progress of the gospel in the world? Where are they who will stand up no matter what for the ways of God? Where are they who will not be content with mediocre discipleship? Where are those who will take up the tasks of ministry, especially when a generation is succeeded by another? We could ask this of the church in general, and the church must ask this in general all the time. Where are our new Bible study leaders? Where are our new elders? Where are our new gospel preachers? Where are our new overseas workers? It's a question we ought not push away too quickly. The God of Elijah seeks men and women who will then be the Elijahs of God, who hear his call, pick up the cloak, and serve in the power of his spirit. Are there any here? Could it be you that God is calling? Well then, as we conclude and draw this to a close, let's note that we have before us two principles that we find in Scripture, repeated again and again for our observation and encouragement. The first principle is that God's work goes on, even though the workers change. Just as Samuel succeeded the long line of judges and David succeeded Saul, so also Elisha succeeded Elijah. But it's the same God being served, and that one and the same God just uses different servants who come and go. Each has a different aspect of the task that they do 
Each has different gifts to bring to the task, but each do what God sends them to do for his glory. Ministers, elders, pastoral workers, they come and go, either called to higher service above or to serve in other places translated somewhere else. It's effective life in the church. People have to go where God wants them to be and God often moves his people around on that chessboard that he sees so that his purposes might be fulfilled. And the second principle is one that's related to the first. And that is that God equips those he calls. Whenever God calls his people to do his will, he equips them with all that is required to do that will. Moses found this way back in Exodus 3 when God called him but also supplied him with Aaron to be his mouth. It's the case of Gideon in Judges 6. Once he took the angel's call seriously, God gave him the means and the method to do the job, that is, the army and the battle plan. It won't be a surprise to you to find out that the same principle applies to you. God's service God's call to service is also his enabling. When God calls you to a task, he will give you the necessary gifts and abilities to do it. And this is why we read from Acts chapter 1 this morning. For it details for us the succession plan that Jesus left his disciples when he went away into heaven. Last week we reflected upon his words about making disciples of all nations and our part to play in that. So this week we're reminded that he has not only given us the task, he's also equipped us for the task. The disciples heard this in the words that he said in Acts 1. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And he did. And he has come upon us too. The power for the task has been given. Of course, there's skills to learn and truths to understand. But the power for the witness But the power for witness is there and it has not been withdrawn. And that truth ought to give us much encouragement. The world is no smaller. The task is no less urgent, but the power is no less available. And the God of Elijah is still calling and equipping servants to take up the baton and to serve him with the same sense of loyalty, prayerfulness and watchfulness. May he be pleased to equip you too in the fullness of that power and carry out the task in which you and I and we all have a share. Will you pray with me for that? Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you that we have your word before us this morning. And as we have read of the succession plan from Elijah to Elisha, and also heard of the succession plan of Jesus, so that all his disciples might be witnesses of his. In Jerusalem, in Judea, 
in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We thank you for the power that you have given us through the promised Holy Spirit who lives within all true believers. Power to help us serve you. We do not need the cloak of Elisha. We do not need the cloak that fell from Elijah to Elisha when you have given us of yourself to be with us but also to be inside us to help us overcome fear to help us in all our witness by word and by deed. So we plead with you to raise up workers for the harvest field. We plead with you to equip them as you have. But in doing so, Lord, we bring ourselves to you and pray that you would use us in whatever task you have for the furthering of your gospel to the ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.